I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world. I hope you're truly safe, sound, and very healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions, at least for now, on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. I'm truly pleased this morning to welcome um, Heather Cox Richardson, a professor of American history at Boston College, uh, known to all of you through her wonderful America, uh, Letters from an American, and um, uh, at least two of her books, which have fascinated me, To Make Men Free and How the South Won the Civil War. Um, we're going to have a conversation today about the state and fate of the American Republic, uh, no small matter these days. Um, but I wanted to start, Heather, with a question which I ask some guests, uh, which they really don't want to talk about, and that is the who is Heather Cox Richardson question. Um, we had Madeleine Albright on uh, several months ago, and um, I, I relate to her story that she had told to me some time ago. Um, she was at Heathrow Airport um, going through customs, and the Brits apparently had some problem with one of her documents, uh, and she was increasingly frustrated and said, uh, do you know who I am? And the Brit custom officials said, no, but we have very smart doctors here who could help you figure that out. So I, I guess I want to ask about the origin story of Heather Cox Richardson, at least on the issue of why uh, the process through which you came to your, your current uh, profession. Well, first of all, if we had that problem in an airport, the um, the I would never ask somebody if they knew who I am because the whole point is I fade absolutely into the woodwork. I'm part of a community and I'm absolutely interchangeable with hundreds of thousands of other people, which is why all this works so well. Um, the who I am, though, and where I came from is, you know, a small town where I grew up with storytellers and we didn't have a lot of TV. We didn't have a lot of outside influences. Um, in our in our faces. I mean, there's lots of books and lots of magazines and all that, but we made sense of the world by the stories people told about it. And you absolutely couldn't understand who your neighbors were or the long-standing feuds or, you know, the soft spot that, for example, my mother had for a World War II veteran who uh, was, was fairly well incapacitated by the time we knew him. And mother always treated him with enormous respect. And finally, you know, at one point she told us that he had done something incredible during the war and he had World War II and had never recovered from that. So in order to understand the world, you had to understand its stories. And as I got older and very absorbed in literature, not in history, I personally became absorbed by the gap between what people think is happening and what is really happening. And as you know, you know, the the reality is often extremely different than what people think is happening. And often what people think is happening is more important for the world than what is really happening. And so that's really what I like to study. My happy place is studying the gulf between what people think is happening. Say, for example, that right now uh, Joe Biden has quite low marks because people believe the economy is in bad shape. And the reality, which is that he has overseen one of the greatest economic booms in American history. What causes that delta and, and what difference does that make? to society. So that's where I come from. 
I mean, that's a critically important point, how truth is perceived today in America. You know, Rand talks about truth decay. I think we're way, way, way beyond truth decay. We, we, we confront a situation where millions of Americans disagree with other millions on empirical reality. And if there is no single definition of truth, that opens the door for a he or a she to ride in and define what truth actually means. And therein lies the origins, at least partial origins, of uh, um, not just a liberal democracies, but a, a authoritarianism. But I, I still want to ask a, an additional question on the Heather Cox Richardson story. You told one interview, you related, I think this is a fascinating origin story. You were researching a paper for your mentor, uh, David Donald at Harvard, and you were in the basement of the uh, Widener Library. And um, you got out, uh, apparently, the microfilm from the Chicago Tribune and actually looked at every story, or at least headlines, from 1861 through the death of Abraham Lincoln, uh, skipping breakfast, lunch, and dinner, feeling faint-headed by the end of the day. So why why the civil war well so that's uh that um that is really my origin story as a historian i was not a good student which will probably horrify a lot of people who read me and think now that i seem to know everything what i do know is now how to do research and how to learn but i i hated school i hated the idea of being stuck at a desk when the world was out there so exciting and and all those things for me to do in it and so I did promise my parents that I would finish college. They were like, you know, I wanted to quit and they were, were adamant that I should at least finish college. So I did, but I spent most of my time in the library and I was taking a course with Professor Donald and who later became my um, first, my undergraduate thesis advisor and then my doctoral dissertation advisor. And, um, and I didn't really have any idea about what I wanted to study. So I was actually down in the basement of government documents, which is technically not Widener. And it was a cold room that kept him cold for the, the preservation of the films and of the documents that were down there. And I just started to read the Civil War. And of course, I knew how it came out, but it doesn't, it, you know, you made it sound very impressive that I read the Chicago Tribune for four years. But in those days, newspapers were only about four pages and two of them were advertising. So basically, that's two pages for each day of the war, which is not a huge amount. But it, and I read very quickly I mean, quickly enough that I could use the automatic machines while they were running. I don't I can't do that any longer. My eyes aren't good enough. But so I read through the war and I watched it all come alive in a way that it never had for me before. You know, things that I'd never heard of. Island number 10 became incredibly important. And, you know, I lived through it. And then I finally got to the end and Lee surrendered, which was just like, like I knew he surrendered, right? Everyone knew Lee surrendered, but Lee surrendered. And I had not eaten, um, which was common for me in those days. And I was just absorbed in what I was doing. And he surrendered. And I was like, oh my God, thank God he surrendered. And then I turned the page and it was bordered in black. They killed Lincoln. And for me, it was like the hand coming out of the end, out of the grave at the end of Carrie. I'm like, oh my God, after all that, they killed Lincoln. And I realized I actually went home that night and wrote a letter to my mother. Um, this is long before email, of course, and said, it was all alive. 
I saw it for the first time. It was all alive. And I decided that's what I wanted to do for everybody else was to bring that history alive for them. And I, I consider it an incredible gift that I have the opportunity to, to try to do that. I don't, it rarely sings to me like it did that day. But yeah, that was the day I decided that school maybe mattered and that I should continue with it. That's a great origin story. In fact, I think just to quote you to the interviewer, um, you said you knew you had to make what was at stake in our history real to the rest of the world. And I think the Civil War is a perfect segue. Um, not that history repeats. You, you, you know that famous line by Mark Twain that history rhymes, although people attach different interpretations to what Twain actually meant. But the rhythmic patterns of the past are critically important. And they're more important, it seems to me now, than ever before. So let me ask you this. You see part of your role as explaining the history behind the politics. I think that's sort of subtitle to Letters from an American. Um, so as a historian of the 19th century, even early 20th century America, can you set this period, uh, say the last 20 years, not necessarily the last four, in some kind of um, context for us? There are many who say that this is not the worst crisis America has ever weathered. Um, but it seems that we've never been here before quite the same way. Um, how, how would you set this in context uh, as a rhythmic pattern in America in America's past? American history has always had a tension in it between the spreading of um, rights and responsibilities with the concept that was embedded in the Declaration of Independence, that all people are created equal and have a right to consent to their government. There has always been that impulse in American history, but there has similarly been an impulse toward concentrating power within a very small group of people. And within our particular system, the founders and then of the uh, of the nation and then the framers of the Constitution believed that America would not end up having its democracy slide toward authoritarianism simply because they had what they considered to be the safety net of Western land. That whenever power got too concentrated in settled societies, people could move out to the West and start again. And they thought that that was going to enable them to undercut the idea of power eventually becoming concentrated in a very few people. And they discovered early on with the settlement of Kentucky in the 1790s that that was in a sense a pipe dream because what happened was that people left Virginia, which had a legal system based in an, an older English legal system that had both primogeniture, that is the, the oldest son got everything when dad died, and human enslavement. And when uh, settlers push across the, the uh, mountains into what is now known as Kentucky, then it was uh, a region of Virginia, very quickly, even though technically that was what they would consider free land. Of course, the indigenous Americans who lived there did not think it was free land. But as soon as they moved out there quickly, people of power got more land. They used that land to amass wealth. They used the, um, the power of owning a number of other human beings to enable them to put their money together. And they began to influence the 
the legislature and the laws in the area to further amass their own power. So that tension between democracy and rising oligarchies starts all the way at the beginning of the country, and it continues. And what we had in the early years of the Republic was that concentration of power among enslavers takes over the federal government, and Americans look at that and say, hey, wait a minute here. That's not what the Declaration of Independence talked about. And they begin to push back, and they do so. And that pattern of the power concentrating among a very small group of people and the people finally pushing back repeated itself in the early Republic in the 1850s, in the 1890s to the 19 aughts with the robber barons and the the labor movement and the, the people who tried to defend progressive values in the early 20th century. It repeated itself in the 1920s. And then it began again. The whole cycle began again after World War II, when we have that moment of the liberal consensus, when people on the, the in, in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party believe in a shared set of values that the federal government should protect equality and the right to consent to your government across the country. And quickly that um, the that that concept gets um, undercut by those who are arguing that government protection of equality is actually a redistribution of wealth because it's going to cost tax dollars. So we're in a very similar pattern or were until 2016, but something happened then that is brand new. And I think we are in the most dangerous moment in American history we have ever been in. And that is that Beginning in 2016, before the election, I would even argue, the Republican Party made a jump from oligarchy, where that party had been before, and the Democrats had been on occasion as well, into defending autocracy, into defending authoritarianism. And that jump from oligarchy to authoritarianism is brand new. And what makes it especially dangerous and frightening now is the fact that the people who adhere to that idea are actually within our government. So when you had a similar situation in the 1850s, those who believed it took their marbles and went home. In this case, they are staying within the government and seeking to change it from within. And this makes this particular moment novel and especially dangerous. Yeah, I want. I do want to do, drill down, even though it's not a historical question. There and there may not be rhythmic patterns of the past to sustain it. As you suggest, I think we are in on terra incognita. We've never been here before. I mean, the great crises in American history: the founding of the republic, the creation of institutions, Civil War, the Great Depression, World War II. The political structures, with the exception of the Civil War, seem to contain a, a certain amount of normal behavior and respect for American traditions and institutions. We somehow now are in, are in a different place. So let me ask, um, because I wrestle with this all the time uh, as, a, as a would-be historian and, and as someone who spent time in government and has a lot of faith in American institutions and guardrails. Journalists and scholars are producing all kinds of articles and warnings now about all kinds of things, looming civil war, sustained violence, any number of rabbit holes into which the Republic could enter um, in 2020, 2024. Where are you uh, who have studied American institutions, watched them develop on the uh, alarmist, it can't happen here scale with respect to the possibilities, uh, the looming possibilities of any number of dystopias I mean, you have people writing about secession now, <clears throat> about uh, cities turning into blue enclaves against 
rural areas where interstate travel could become different. I mean, I'm thinking of the Mad Max movies. Uh, um, and so where are you, Heather Cox Richardson, now on the issue of how worried should we be? Well, first of all, I want to preface anything I say with two things. First, that I'm a prophet of the past, not the future. So anything I say is just as valuable as what the next person on the street says. And for both of us, that and, you know, three bucks will get you a cup of coffee at a decent shop, you know. So being aware that I can't tell anybody what's going to happen. Uh, The other thing I want to emphasize that I think we don't pay enough attention to is that, let me say contingency, the idea that anything can happen. And I really mean that. So I could certainly sit here and outline for you times when it looked like everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And let me just mention, for example, 1862 in America. In 1862, if you were paying attention, it really looked like the country was going to divide in half, the South was going to win the war, and the North was going to be ruined economically. That didn't happen. 1943, World War II. You know, I could go on and keep on saying in the middle of things, it always looks dire or else we wouldn't be in the middle of things. And I want to also add that history can turn on a dime. So if you look, for example, at the landslide election of 1928, people really believed that the Democratic Party was done and that the Republican Party had found this new way to handle history and to handle politics and the economy so that we would never have poverty again. We would never need reform movements. We would never need the Democrats. We had this wonderful new system. Within two years, the Republican Party couldn't even give an interview without a leader of the Republican Party couldn't give an interview without people saying, ah, if if his lips are moving, he's lying. So things do change really quickly. Now, all of those that all that being said, uh, the third piece, of course, of that is that this is our government. We get to decide. So the idea that somehow we're in, in the control of forces that we can't handle is dead wrong. And I can give you examples of that. Now, that being said, um, I do think that there are things that people are overlooking when they think about the future. When I hear about we're headed for a civil war, um, part of me says headed. You know, people say there's going to be violence. Another part of me says going to be. You know, we are in an exceedingly um, uh, divided time in which people are dying. They're just not dying in rows of men in, in funny little outfits. They're dying in domestic violence. They're dying in mass shootings. They're dying in racially motivated shootings. There, uh, there are, again, if you write about this era historically in 100 years, I think it's going to look an awful lot like the 1890s when we had enormous numbers of small violent strikes uh, where the, I'm sorry, the strikes were not violent, but the police authorities cracked down on them with violence. So in a sense, we are already there. Um, But then I think I look forward and I, I, the other piece I don't think we're paying attention to is the fact that our leadership is older now by far than it has ever been before. And that it's a lot, it's a great deal older than the people in our country. And that's something that really matters when we think about the future demographically. And, um, Finally, I spend a lot of time gaming out where I think everything is going. I spend a lot of time gaming that out. 
And there's a theoretical argument and there's a, an empirically based argument for America. I can't do any, any other country. Theoretically, it doesn't work to have a society in which the, mo- the majority of people do not believe their government represents them. It just doesn't work. There's no way that you can do that in the modern era without keeping those people down, either through violence or by letting them into the political process. It's a, there's no other way to do it. So one of those two things theoretically is going to have to happen. We're going to have to have violence to keep down the vast majority of people, or we are going to have to change our system so that people feel they are represented. There's theory behind that. And it's also a no-brainer, right? But then the other side of the question is empirical. What has America done in these past situations, the 1850s, the 1890s, the 1920s, and now in the present? What's happened is the American people woke up and said, the government that is in charge does not represent me. I don't like what it's doing. And they have worked in in those cases, first from outside the system and then within the system to change that system. And so historically, we're at the kind of crisis moment that says we are going to rework our American democracy. There's no guarantee that this won't be the one time we say, forget it, we're going to go full-blown authoritarian and we're going to have people crushed in the streets. That's not America's way in the past. I'm not sure what we'll do going forward. I mean, it gets to the whole question of the theory of change. And I, I have to say, America has weathered its crises, including the worst thing that could ever happen to a country, uh, full-on, on-scale civil war. But it's done so within a certain framework. The theory of change, the, 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 the most hopeful of your two uh, pot roads, uh, is reforming the system. But the theory of change in America, in some respects, runs against that. And when, in fact, you have had significant change, it seems to me, it's always been bottom up, uh, the kind of what King referred to as the fierce urgency of now, married to leaders who are able to manipulate the system, thinking FDR, uh, Lyndon Johnson, in order to satisfy to some extent change and make um, change America for the better. Now, you're suggesting uh, a situation in which that may not be possible. Where where are the leaders who are able to do this? Where is the political framework, the constituency? Forget bipartisanship, just the, how, how do you get something done in a society in which one party essentially is prepared to compromise norms, traditions, and institutions in the pursuit of power. Um, The other party, we'll get to this in a minute, may have its own kind of dysfunction, but I don't want to engage in whataboutism here. There's an asymmetry here, profound asymmetry. But how do do you do do that? You, You can tell us how you do it, how you did it, uh, for a century and a half or two centuries, when in fact the system, however imperfect, worked. But how do you do it when the system is broken down? So I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest a a slightly different theoretical way to think about this moment in a second. But I would like to point out that America has in fact 
had the very sort of government that I talked about when I talked just now about an authoritarian government that crushes its opposition through violence, that makes rules for its own people and and shuts everybody else out. It's a question of who you know, not not the laws. Um, and that capital, for example, has utterly shunned because of that authoritarian government, because if there's no laws, your your investments are not going to be protected. And that, of course, is the American South from the 1870s through 1965. And so if you're looking to see how Americans react to that kind of an authoritarian government, that's your model right there. And it's a very complicated model, uh, and and we tend to paint it, as I just did, with a very stark set of brushes. That is, there was resistance within the American South. There were certainly opportunities, at least until the early 20th century, for Black people to ally with white uh, Southerners and to, in fact, gain control of local governments until 1898, when um, the with uh, the famous coup that um, by by uh, racial government um, in that in um, North Carolina falls. Uh, well, it, it's uh, taken down by vigilantes. So there are ways in which people challenged those governments, but that government system eventually of course gets taken down by the federal government by pressure in the in the courts and in the federal government and it gets taken down because finally people see what is actually happening and i wrote about that the other night that you know when people sort of generally say oh things were bad during jim crow that's a broad brush kind of vague oh yeah i'm not going to think about that when you literally hear about a a, a woman taken out of a car, seven months pregnant and tied up to a tree next to her husband and had 60 bullets put in them. It's very real. Or you hear about the veteran whose eyes were put out because he said uh, yes instead of yes, sir. Um, Those things make those systems real. And people saw that. Now, in this moment we're in right now, there are two ways to deal with Uh, trying to take back the country. One of them are those legal challenges that ended up working against the Southern Democrats between 1870 and 1965, continuing to challenge things in the courts. And you see people like Mark Elias doing so much wonderful work pushing back against gerrymandering, because the the courts theoretically are going to look at facts on the ground. But key, and this is back to the theoretical point I said I was going to make, you identified um, the, you said uh, leaders who were, um, I don't think you used the word Machiavellian, but they they read the moment and they responded to it. I would say something slightly theoretically different. And that is that I spent a lot of time thinking about how politics work. And what I came to believe is that this, the world changes when enough people in, in, a, in a democratic system, I, that's the only one I can talk about authoritatively. Okay, so I won't go where I was going to go there. Um, it, that that people's minds change. They, you know, they might have been happy under a system, whatever it was, and they because it seems to represent them well enough and they're putting food on the table and all that. And when that ceases to be the case, they start to grumble a little bit, but there's little pockets of them grumbling. And, you know, they're not really the, the, nobody has to listen to them. And as they get more and more unhappy, they start to find more and more people who are talking like they are. And they start to articulate a new vision of what government should look like. Now, mind you, I haven't said anything about leaders yet. 
They are going to kick up a few leaders, possibly, or people who are already in power are going to read that constituency and say, wait, those are votes waiting to be picked up. And they are going to leave what they, the party that they currently adhere to and start to represent those people. And the, the trick then, if you look at changing American politics, to my mind, is less looking at the people at the bottom and less looking at those leaders as it is to look at the storytellers. Who is articulating that vision for what government should look like? And the crisis that we're in right now, to my mind, is driven by the extraordinary degree to which social media bots, trolls, and so on have amplified those false voices that we originally talked about, those false voices that literally say something is true that is not true. And you saw that on Twitter this weekend when at least two uh, members of the Freedom Caucus sent out tweets that were flat lies. They were lies. They, they, they were creating a false reality. But because of the fact it was on Twitter, you could amplify it and amplify it and amplify it. So they become the storytellers of a false world. And those people who are trying to tell the real stories are getting drowned out. And that's, I think, why we are where we're here. And one of the key pieces that we will have to fix if we're going to get out of it. You're describing, though, a process that is arguably generational in character. I mean, we we have a crisis. You could you could look at the last three centuries of American history. You could argue we've had three undeniably great crises in this country. One in the 18th century around the founding and the creation of institutions, where you literally have the great powers in our backyard. Second Civil War. Third, the Great Depression. And you had three undeniably great presidents. One in the 18th, one in the 19th, and one in the 20th century who not only weathered these, helped the nation weather these crises, but created change that made the country, certainly not perfect to say the least, but better. What you're describing is a process that, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's got so many factors leading into it that I wonder how in a country of 330 million people, this, this large, how, working outside of the traditional framework in which presidents, political systems have resolved crises. We're, we're in a huge crisis now over what it means. And you, you, you talk about this, it's the rationale in part for the letters from an American about what it means to be an American. This is the fundamental, it's a fundamental divide. I don't, I mean, I, I'm old and I have too much faith, perhaps, in our institutions. Um, I, I, I worry about not just the headlines, but the trend lines. And I, you know, I tried to convince a millennial the other day that 1968 was a worse year in American history than the one we confront right now. Thousands of Americans were dying in Vietnam. You had two assassinations. You had urban, urban riots. You had Chicago, you had Richard Nixon at the end of the year being elected president of the United States. I, there was no sale. This, and I understand why uh, a 20-year-old wouldn't buy this. Do your students, are your students hopeful? 
I don't want to speak for my students because they come from a lot of different perspectives. If I had to, I would say part of them, they're very, they're very active. And, and I think perhaps my observation about the, the age of our leadership comes from them because they just don't see that they have a lot in common with senators who are in, you know, approaching 90. Um, but, but I would say this to you on that front. Um, tell FDR that things can't change on a dime. Or more closer to home, we have within the last year, within the last year, Donald Trump loyalists have convinced huge numbers of people of something that is not true, that the election was stolen. If if they can be convinced of something that quickly, people can also be convinced of something positive that quickly. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to your vision of human nature. Are people always going to gravitate toward, you know, the, the hatred, toward the, you know, you're ripping me off and the, the, the sort of toxic individualism of I'm just in this for me? Or are people really the other way? that they would like to do things that are positive. They want to believe their vote matters. They want to believe their voice matters and they want to believe in community. And my observation of human nature is that, you know, we're pretty good, good people as a species. And yeah, we all screw up and yeah, they're those horrible bullies that nobody wants to be part of. But for the most part, we'd like to do what is right and good and does the best for most people. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. You know, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on social media, a lot of big lies, little lies, constantly bombarding humans who live in this country. Is there no sense of, I mean, I voted for Republicans and Democrats and work for Republicans and Democrats, so don't take this comment the wrong way. Is there a sense of civic responsibility on the part of an individual human to think about things for themselves, to bring some rigor or discipline to evaluating the information that they receive? And if that is not a a responsibility of every citizen, then what causes humans to basically gravitate toward things which are not only empirically false, but absurd. Is it is it anger at the system? Is it a poor economy? Is it race? Why are why are people so amenable to believing these things? Well it seems to me you're talking about two very different arguments here. One is do people in a democracy have a responsibility to think for themselves and to evaluate Absolutely. And for what it's worth, my observation, and this is just an observation, is that people want to do that. They want good information. They want to be able, not everybody, 
<laughs> not everybody, but most people do want to. And in our modern world, that's hard to do. There's an awful lot coming at you. And one of a great example of this is one of my favorite pieces I ever wrote that probably nobody remembers was on the war in Yemen. And because literally I started that with, I know zero about Yemen. I don't even know where it is. And I spent probably 16 hours that day learning as much as I could about Yemen. There was a war there. And it took me that much time to dig out enough information that I felt I was even conversant with some of who the players were. Who has time to do that? A senior professor in history has the time to do that. But most people don't have the time to do that. The information is there, but aggregating it in such a way that it makes sense when you're you know, taking care of the kids and taking out the garbage and running off to work and your car gets a flat tire, it's really not possible for a lot of people. And that's one of the things I think that's on people in the media to try and make that really accessible. There's very good, wonderful journalism out there, but you know, it takes, it takes me to write a letter. It it takes me probably a minimum of six hours to process the day's news, to make it digestible. That's hard for people to have a sense to do. So that's one of the things that's out there. But the other question is a very different one. And that is why do people gravitate toward hatred and vitriol spilled online? And that is again, back in my wheelhouse, that is Uh, you know, was very heavily thought about after World War II when people wanted to figure out where Hitler and Mussolini came from. And finally, people like Eric Hoffer, who was a longshoreman in uh, San Francisco in 1951, wrote a book called True Believers, in which he took a lot of the ideas that were swimming around from people like George Orwell and Hannah Arendt and people thinking about how you get the rise of authoritarianism. And he said, listen, and mind you, I'm not going directly from him. I've thought a lot about this because I read him um, uh, filtered through Eisenhower, which is also very important. And then added a lot of my own observations. But basically what he was arguing was that you don't really have to worry about, about a Hitler or a Mussolini because they're everywhere. What you need to worry about is why in certain times people are willing to follow a Mussolini or a Hitler, which is to me a much more interesting question. And what he argued was that a destabilized population that feels like it has been abandoned either religiously or culturally or economically is ripe for the rise of an authoritarian who tells them, you need, you know, we need to fix the country by going back to the past when you mattered. And the reason that you're in trouble is not because of new laws or the changing economy or any number of the things that actually cause that destabilization. That authoritarian figure blames those people. Now, who those people are doesn't really matter, but except to those people. But psychologically, the more that the leader reinforces the idea that those chosen few are the ones who should be in power and those others are not the ones who are supposed to be in power, that they are the ones creating this instability that's hurting the people in power, you know, that that group, uh, the more you do that, the more psychologically that in-group needs to double down on that idea that they are the victims. They are the ones that are under attack by these others. And that, I mean, he, he does a lot, of course, with the Holocaust in that book. But that idea that you create a situation in which an authoritarian can take power by hitting the emotional need to get back to uh, a world in which they felt more valued, I think says a lot about where we are today. And you can see this, I mean, even last weekend when Trump talked in the former president, defeated president Donald Trump talked in Arizona, he hit again and again and again 
in completely falsely on how white people in this country were under attack. Really classic Hoffer language. And that, I think, you saw rise in America really with Nixon's campaign in 1968 when his advisors quite literally said, we got to stop reasoning with voters. We need to hit their emotional needs because that's much more direct. It's much quicker. And we can form a, a winning coalition so long as we don't try and reason with them. We just hit their emotional and if you look at the Nixon-Kennedy debates of 1960, which are based in very minute arguments about the work, for example, that they did on congressional committees, versus 1968, just eight years later, when there are um, there are ads that flash photographs that make the the world look like it's falling apart, and then a final voice saying, you know, vote like your whole world depends on it. You can see the rise of this emotionally based hard-hitting, um, just vote for us and we'll get you back to a happy world of the 1950s really taking hold. I mean, that's, uh, it's a hearts and minds argument. I, uh, you know, there are many reasons why why people in this country supported Donald Trump. Uh, I, I, having worked a lot on Arab-Israeli negotiations, I'm reminded of what a, a young Palestinian said to me in the 80s when I asked him, what was Arafat's attraction? Why do you support Yasser Arafat? And his answer was incredibly evocative. He said, "We support our, I support Arafat because Arafat is a stone that I throw at the Israelis every day. Now, uh, whether it's alienation, the breakdown of institutions, a bad economy, a soulless existence for many people, I don't know what the answer is. But this is a, the hearts and minds problem. I'd like to reverse it. I'd like to believe that the way you reach people ultimately is to reverse hearts and minds. And to some degree, you're arguing that. Minds and hearts. Because if you can convince someone rationally of something, maybe then and only then will they really believe. But that competes with what you're arguing, which is extremely powerful. Not necessarily. You know, I, I live in a community that has a number of Trump supporters here and I know them quite well. I've grown up with them. And it does seem to me, not everybody is, re, is, is accessible any longer, for sure. But people want to believe their lives have meaning. And what, what Trump has done for a lot of people is to make them feel like they're part of something that really matters, which they haven't been able to, to think for a long time. Well, you know, there's something else that really matters, and that's the survival of American democracy. And that seems to me to be um, the sort of language that we need to have more of in our country right now. Agreed. Uh, we have a minute or two left, um, and I don't want to uh, end on an annoyingly negative note. Um, so I want to ask you, um, as a historian, no as a historian, <laughs> as a human, as a human and as a historian, uh, and as someone who's done a lot to shape the current debate, with with your writings and your chats. Um, Elie Wiesel once said that without hope, there's no life. Okay? And I think he was right. What is it? Because I know you have it. But what is it more than anything else that gives you hope for American democracy, for the future of the country? Oh, that's easy. Us. You know, think about the people you know. You, you know, we're we're decent people. 
and we screw up a lot. I mean, there's no magical past for us to go back to. But I have never been in a group of people that I wouldn't, provided they were all allowed to speak, make good decisions. And yes, we'd screw up, but the majority of our decisions would be good ones. And I have faith in the American people. And at the end of the day, what else can we do? And to guess that we will be able to pull this together and recreate something that that looks better than it did in the past, if not necessarily for ourselves, for our children. I fear things are going to get worse before they get worse. But I truly do believe in what you say. And I will continue to believe because, frankly, there is no there is no alternative. Um, Heather Cox Richardson, I want to thank you, first of all, for what you do. Uh, every day. Uh, you make us smarter uh, and you put things in 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 the virtual space that are worth thinking through and thinking about. Uh, and then to thank you so much for uh, for coming on Carnegie Connects. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash carnegieconnects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.